0: So I imagine that um, physical education or gym class was probably different for many of us. I don't know what it was like in Puerto Rico or Malaysia or all the many countries that our church family comes from. But I imagine that there are some similar stories of the drama and maybe even some like embarrassment humiliation that often occurs in gym class. Um, first of all, there's gym uniforms. Uh, there's changing in front of classmates. There's playing all these different competitive sports. But for me, the worst part of gym class was choosing teams. I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, growing up, um, gym teachers thought it would be a great idea for them to pick two people in the class in front of everyone to choose who they wanted on their team to be the most successful and to win um, whatever sport that there was that day. And if you got to be one of the people who picked a team, there was a lot of pressure on you, right? You would have these people kind of like, pick him, pick him, and, you know, it got, like, really loud, and um, you had all this pressure, like, okay, I need to pick the most athletic people and think about the sport you're playing, and he's good at catching the ball, and she's good at, you know, throwing the ball, and you're thinking about all this stuff. But then also, there's your friends, right? And you you don't want to... Um, leave them out, maybe if they're not as athletically, you know, good as everybody else. And so the worst thing that could happen is if you were one of the last two people that were picked um, to play on that team. And that was always like the whole time you were worried, maybe I'm the last one. Yes, so some of you can relate. I am, I was not very athletic. I wasn't the worst, all right? And my friends kind of liked me. So I'm somewhere in the middle, right? But The pressure, like, it grew, and you're like, maybe this time I'm going to be the last one pick. Maybe it's this time. So um, I don't think about that, you know, for fun these days. Um, Like, look back and go, oh, remember those days in gym class. But honestly, I swear, that has been coming back to me, um, those memories, just thinking about this message and how God uniquely picks his team. And who he wants to play on his team. And as we look through the Bible, what we see is who he chose to be a part of his plan for restoration and reconciliation through the Bible. And he didn't often choose the most talented, the most popular, the most powerful, or the, mo- the strongest people. He instead chose people that were kind of on the margins. And it, it occurred to me that if Jesus was picking his team today in gym class, he would pick the kid who can't catch He would pick, uh, you know, the quiet kid that maybe um, everybody else thinks is a little bit weird, or he would um, pick all these misfits, and he'd put them all on one team, and they would be the best dodgeball team that this world has ever seen, because that's how God works, right? But what about the church? Who gets to be a part of our team, or who gets to lead or be up front, Not only does the church sometimes uh, behave a little bit more like an elementary school gym class, but sometimes um, we've also forgotten the stories of the people that God used through the Bible and also through the 2,000-plus years of church history. We've forgotten or we've hidden people that don't really fit our mold. And so during this teaching series, we've focused on how God has used women in the Bible and in the history of the church. But um, we could have chosen another group. We could have chosen immigrants. We could have chosen the poor. We could have chosen people who are sick. We could have chosen the young. Because all of these groups of people, society has kind of put them to the side instead of putting them up front. And also sometimes the church has done that as well. But God used these groups of people over and over again in the Bible. And so for women... Over the years and continuing today, the church has kind of left um, many women out of leadership in the church. And so that's why we chose to look at women in the Bible who, over the last several weeks, we um, uncovered their stories. Some of their stories are hidden to us, but we've uncovered them to kind of look at how powerfully God has used women through history and um, through the Bible and his church. And so we started out. We looked at how God created the very first woman in Genesis. Then we looked at uh, the story of the midwives in the story of Exodus and how these women resisted their orders in order to save the male Jewish babies. We talked about then the powerful military and political leader Deborah, and then we looked at the educated intellectual uh, prophet Hulda, who was the first to authenticate Scripture in the Old Testament. Then last week, Larry looked at all of the women in Jesus' life that he knew and he loved and he respected and he partnered with in order to spread the good news of the gospel. So as we continue this morning, this is our last week in this series, we're going to um, look today at the women who were involved in the beginning of the church. And as we kind of look through the history of the Bible and the role that the women play, we kind of see a trend that happens. And so I I found this quote in a book that um, our leadership team have looked at as um, a good way to look and view leadership in the church. And the, the quote says this, That women and their role in ministry expanded as the Bible's plot moved forward, and that it didn't grow smaller. As God's work of his kingdom came on earth as it is in heaven, we see that redemption came into a broken world with the power to break and change the social structures at play in society today. And so I'm just going to introduce you to a few women this morning from the beginning of the church. There are many. I chose a few that are challenging. Their names are challenging to say, and some that are easier. That you might recognize um, those names that we use them today. Um, but we're just going to look at the the um, the contribution that they made to the church and the and the role that they played in the early church. So certainly we meet several of these women in the book of Acts, which tells us kind of the history of the beginning of the church and how it spread throughout the world by leaders um, in the church, especially Paul. And what we have to remember is that many of these church leaders were um, Jewish men who grew up in a patriarchal society. But for many of them, they spent years with Jesus and they watched how he worked with women and um, talked with them and that it was countercultural for them. And so they brought that experience of um, watching how Jesus was with women into the church. But for Paul, that was different. If you remember, Paul didn't have that experience. He didn't um, walk alongside of Jesus. He actually fought against Jesus in his um, ministry. And so when we see Paul, when he is um, has this dramatic conversion experience, that everything in his life changes. Before Paul um, becomes a follower of Jesus, he was an extremist, right? He kept to the, all of the society's um, roles, um, the separation between Jews and Gentiles, uh, separation in classes, and the separation between genders, and then we see Paul all of that is kind of challenged. Through his writings, we see these letters that he sends to the different churches. We see how that is changed. And so um, in a letter to the church of Galatia, he writes this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Think about that. All of us who have been baptized, that we've put on Christ like we've put on... New clothes, and that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That we're all one team, and that no one gets left out. And we see an example of this in Paul's writing to the church. In Rome, so the book of Romans um, ends. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a great book. It's a challenging like theology um, to read through Romans, but it ends with this chapter of Paul kind of thanking everybody on the team in the church in Rome, and so it's a long list of names. Um, but I want to read a few of those um, that he mentions in the very beginning of Romans chapter 16 verse 1. He says, "I commend you to our sister Phoebe." a deacon of the church in Corinth. And I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their home. And greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So um, I tried to read through all of these names. There's actually 28 of them. And I just uh, I couldn't do it. It was too hard. I was, like, sounding it out and stuff. And I was like, okay, you guys can look for yourselves if you want to. But I'll just tell you that um, twenty out of 28 names, 10 of them are women. And we don't know a lot about some of those women. Um, but we know that they were valuable because Paul thought it was important to list um, their, how they contributed to this church. And that they deserved kind of a special greeting for the church. But uh, there are three women that I want to talk about in a little bit um, greater detail. And the first one is Phoebe. He starts out um, introducing them to Phoebe. We know that she um, was from a small port city in Corinth. And here Paul refers to her as a deacon. Well, it's translated in English as deacon. In Greek, it's the same word that he uses actually to describe himself and other uh, male leaders, including Timothy. Um, What's interesting is that some English translations um, translate it as servant when it's used for Phoebe um, and use deacon when it's um, used for men. Um, Certainly, Jesus has shown us that being a leader in the church that is about being a servant, Jesus showed us that. Um, And so Phoebe, I'm sure, um, did that as well. But it means something more than just being a servant. Um, This word, it means that to be a leader, and in fact, um, a messenger, and many believe that Phoebe was the one who had the, the letter that he sent to the churches in Rome, and that sh- that's why she is, in the beginning, the first person, they say, help her out, because she's bringing this message, and um, for those who would have Carried These letters, they would have read them in front of the churches, which is an interesting thing to think that he chose a woman to go and read these letters, especially in a time when women um, weren't normally literate. Um, So we see uh, she has a unique role to play. We also see that she um, financially has supported Paul and his ministry, but others as well. So um, she has some type of means um, financially. And there is a lot about Phoebe in other letters that are written around this time, and not in the Bible, but around this time, other um, letters have been found, that give us the idea that Phoebe um, followed or um, was with Paul when he went around to other churches and um, and helped to spread the gospel with him. So that is Phoebe. Um, the next woman I want to discuss is Priscilla. Priscilla... Um, well, let me go back to, to Phoebe a little bit, um, just because I want to talk about the differences sometimes we see um, for the role of deacon. Um, I don't know what churches you grew up in, but um, there often churches will have a role for deacon and deaconess, and so as I was reading through um, with... With Phoebe, I saw a lot of um, authors, I read some books and some um, articles about Phoebe, and several of these authors talked about how this role of deaconess, this unique role for a woman, um, we don't really see that in the Bible, but it, it was definitely a part of many of their um, upbringings in their church, and what that meant was a deaconess's role was to prepare communion for the service. And I was kind of like, I don't know if you guys can relate to that at all, but I was like, oh, that's a thing. Because that was my church that I grew up in. I remember my mother um, was voted in so that she could prepare communion. Um, And I remember watching her. I was a part of a church, you know, had hundreds of people, and we used these little cups. Um, So she would like fill hundreds of cups um, before we go to church on Sunday. And certainly she was being a servant she was being used by god she did it cheerfully and it's a great admirable role but i can remember even as a child looking at her and thinking that's the highest role that a woman played in our church was to fill communion cups a, a job that i knew i could do as a child and when we look at phoebe i don't think that that's the role that we see her playing and um and it certainly isn't in the language used here by Paul. So that's Phoebe. Um, the next woman I want to talk about is Priscilla. So Priscilla is mentioned several times with her h- husband, Aquila. It's handy that their names rhymed, Priscilla and Aquila, right? It's easy to remember, right? So they are mentioned six times in the Bible. Four of those times, Priscilla is named before her husband, um, maybe because it sounds better, Priscilla and Aquila, but um, But it's unusual. It's unusual for a woman in this time to be named before her husband. And so we don't really know what that means. But um, she obviously played a really important role in their ministry together. We see them in the book of Acts um, for the first time when they they meet with Paul in Corinth. And they begin to lead with him there. And they lead for about 18 months. And then they decide to go and travel to Ephesus. And so that's where they have a house church that meets in their home there, and we see them meeting a man named Apollos. Now, you might remember Apollos' name because the series that we did before this in 1 Corinthians, Apollos is mentioned as this really well-known speaker that would come um, to Corinth and and speak. He was a a great preacher. Well, Priscilla and Aquila hear him speaking, and um, they are impressed by him, but they realize his... Um, theology isn't quite, um, they, he needs some updates. Um, uh, and so they. And it says in um, Acts chapter 18 that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, speaking of Apollos, that they invited him to their home and they explained to him the ways of God more adequately. I think it's, um, you know, this is very nice, right? <laughs> very diplomatic. Uh, but it's interesting that this couple together are discipling and teaching this man who is well known um, in the faith and then we see them later leave Ephesus and they go to Rome where obviously they are hosting a uh, church in their home again in Rome so that is Priscilla and then the last woman I want to talk about is a woman named Junia so Junia is perhaps one of the most intentionally hidden women in the Bible Junia is mentioned with her husband here um, in verse 7 of uh, Romans chapter 16. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So we don't know a lot about this couple here. Um, we know that in uh, the Greek here that either um, Paul is saying that they were Jews, or he's even saying maybe perhaps that they're relatives of him, um, that he, they are well known to him, and that they became Christians before even Paul does. But uh, what we do know about them has caused a lot of controversy, and that is that Paul refers to both Junia and her husband as fellow apostles. And so that has caused a lot of controversy over the years because an apostle was a high-level leader at this time. Paul was considered an apostle. Peter wasn't considered an apostle. Um, It was a really high uh, leadership role in the church at that time. And so... um, years in church history, um, people were confused. How could Junia be considered to be an apostle? And there was so much um, question of that, um, it was so hard to imagine that, that they thought that maybe Paul um, actually meant a man who had a name close to Junia. So Junia is a name that was, um, was uh, common at that time, um, and, but they said maybe there's a male form named Junius and so I'm getting the stink eye, which is trying. I'm trying not to laugh from some people here, but um, it's great. Um, but no, they so they said maybe there's there's a man named that's who he's t- referring to is a man named Junius. And honestly, in translations from 1927 in all the way into the 1990s, um, many translations list Junia as Junius, a male version of the name, because it was just, um, it was easier to imagine that this name that doesn't exist was what Paul meant than that a woman would have this role. Thankfully, um, the evidence has um, come out and the translations have changed, but Junia was intentionally hidden and in her role, um, was hidden for years in the role that she played, there are just a few other women I want to talk about. Um, a few that were mentioned in the book of Philippians. Um, Paul writes in Philippians chapter four, "I plead with Iodia and I plead with Sintachi to be the same mind, to be in the, of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers." whose names are in the book of life. So here, Paul is using the exact same language for these women as his co-workers that he uses for um, high-level leaders like um, Timothy. The last woman I want to talk about is a woman that we meet in Acts chapter 16, um, a woman named Lydia. So he goes to Philippi, Paul does, and he's looking for a place where people gather um, to worship God. And he finds this woman who is an independent, a business owner, and she is there. She loves the Lord. He shares with her about Jesus, and she gives her life to Jesus and following him. And so a, a house starts to meet in her home, and also Paul stays with her um, many times for long periods of time. So this woman who is a business leader, um, she hosts and um, this church and other leaders as well. So why are all these women mentioned by Paul and other New Testament writers? Why? I think it isn't shocking because we see these women in the roles that that God created women to be alongside of men. This life-saving, very needed warriors who are ready to accomplish the tasks that God has commissioned for both of his co-image bearers, when we looked at um, Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, that he gives both men and women these responsibilities to get done. And as women throughout the Bible, we see that women have kingdom responsibilities. And that continues today. So in a book um, by Carol Curtis James, she is um, an author that wrote Half the Church, um, that I I mentioned it in... um, the first message of the series. She also wrote a book called Maelstrom um, that talks a little bit about the um, toxic masculinity culture that sometimes can be in the church and um, talks about how um, Jesus came to redeem that as well. And so she talks about the responsibilities that we share as co-image bearers um, of God. And this is what she says our responsibilities are. She says they are to know the God whose image we bear, to see the world through God's eyes, and to care for it on his behalf. It means the hard work of rebuilding that strategic blessed alliance between men and women falls on all of us, and that it is still not good for the man to be alone. And it means what's happening in God's world, the suffering and the poverty and the injustice, is our business as God's image, and that the task he entrusts to his sons and his daughters is to join him in bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. She's saying that we need each other, that this blessed alliance that God created between man and woman, that we are share the image of God and that we need each other, and that we're all on the team and that nobody gets left out. So a few weeks ago, I was at a small women's conference that was led by this um, amazing woman. She's... um, leads worship at this really large multi-ethnic church um, that we were introduced to her a couple years ago when we went to a multi-ethnic church conference. Um, Her name is Nikki Lerner. She's kind and strong and talented, and she's really centered in Christ. You get that when you're around her, and she's just truly delightful to be around. I just want to show you a picture of her um, with another amazing woman you might recognize. Um, She's also very tall, as you can see. She is wearing heels, I will say that. Um, So the conference that we went to was named Resonance. And during one of the sessions, she explained why she chose that name, Resonance. She chose it because it's a musical term, and she is a musician. She's a very talented singer. um, But I I remember hearing that term being used a lot by my... um, opera singer friends. I have a lot of um, friends who are opera singers and they tend to use that word a lot. I didn't really know what it meant and so I asked um, for kind of a layman's version of what uh, resonance means. And so I'm going to help you with my non-musical un- understanding of what that word means. So um, your resonance is how you direct your, the sound or your voice through the unique anatomy of your face, right? So when you sing, all of us, right, all of us kind of push the air through the different spaces in our face. And all of us have unique faces that are made, right? God made us uniquely. So all of our voices are different. And the reason why your resonance is important is because it's what makes you to be able to be heard above others, so all of our voices are different, but our resonance is what allows us to be heard. And, uh, you know, uh, opera singers, they have to be so, uh, loud enough that they can be heard above even an orchestra. They aren't miked. Um, they just do that with their resonance, and that's why they talk about it being so important. So think about that for us and how we are all image bearers of God, and yet we're all created uniquely. And all of our voices are really important and need to be heard. So during this conference, uh, Nikki led us in a discussion of the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon. So um, honestly, I was a little bit surprised that she chose this text because, you know, a room full of women. And I knew that this book is poetry about a man and a woman talking about their love for each other and sex. And so I was kind of like, where are you going with this, Nikki? And you might be thinking, where are you going with this, Wendy? Um, but uh, I realized as she started to read through the passages, what was unique is that most of this book is in the woman's voice. And that's very unique, actually, in scripture, to hear a woman's voice. And um, But if you read through Song of Solomon, that's what you find. And her... Y- Her voice is very unique, especially to what we hear. um, If you were raised in the church, a lot about um, what a woman's voice is like, because her voice is strong, it's confident, it's capable, and it's sexy. And that's not really the view of biblical womanhood that I was raised with in the church. Um, But in the book, you hear her voice and the words she uses to praise the man she is with, and she doesn't diminish herself in any way she doesn't diminish her capabilities and yet she's able to praise um, and lift him up and then you see him um, respond in kind of the same way respond lovingly in a way that um, doesn't diminish her abilities at all in fact he praises her both for her beauty and her strength and we see this um, really healthy view of what marriage should look like right Um, building one another up and nobody needing to push the other person down. But Nikki asked us and challenged us to go a little bit deeper when we're thinking about how a woman and a man's voice is unique and needed for one another. And so she challenged us to ask these questions. How do all the men in our lives need the uniqueness of a woman's voice in their life? Is there something about the woman's voice and how we speak and our perspective that is a part of us being uniquely made in God's image? And I had to really think about that, something I'd never considered before. Do men really need to hear my voice, my encouragement, my praise, my unique perspective? And I was challenged by that thought, and yet I knew something was true in my life, That I didn't just need my husband's voice in my life, but I also need other men's voice in my life as well. I need their encouragement, I need their affirmation, and I need their perspective. Not because I'm weak or weaker, but because they also are image bearers of God. And God made us to work together as a team and that we need each other's voices in our lives. So men in this church, I want to tell you guys how much I appreciate you. Um, You have received this teaching series with excitement and appreciation. You have not been a defensive. You've been encouraging, and you've listened to sisters share stories of their experiences and even some of their pain, and you haven't complained about all this talk about women. And you've just truly been such a gift to me and to the other women in this church and continue to be so. And I'm just really thankful that I get to and that my daughters get to be a part of this church with you. So I want to encourage you to share your voice because your words have the potential to lift us to places that we might not even see ourselves going. And women, your voices are needed too, not just by the other women, in your lives, but the men as well. And so I encourage you to find your voice that is centered in the knowledge that you are loved and created wonderfully by a loving God. Find your resonance and direct that uniqueness of your voice and use it. And so I want to kind of end this teaching series with a declaration um, for us as women. um, It's a prayer. And I found it on a blog that I, I follow. Um, I want to tell you that I didn't write it myself. It didn't say who the author was, but it's powerful. And so I, I want to read that kind of over us all um, as a declaration of who we want to be. We are women walking in the spirit of Abigail, unafraid to use our intelligence and our resources to protect those who depend on us and to do whatever is right in your sight. We are women walking in the spirit of Priscilla ready to use our gifts to let your truth blossom and cause untruth to wither and fade. We are women walking in the spirit of Miriam called to lead your people and ready to sing for joy at what you have done among us. We are women walking in the spirit of Mary the Virgin fully surrendered to you in whatever surprising and dangerous and precious calling you may ask us. We are women walking in the spirit of Junia, the apostle, knowing that one in Christ Jesus might take us where no woman has trod before. We are women walking in the spirit of Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, dwelling in the gratitude of what you have done for us and willing to throw caution to the wind for your sake, We are women walking in the spirit of Huldah with the courage to speak uncomfortable truth to power and thus become the midwives of holy transformation. We are women walking in the spirit of Phoebe, the deacon, with our feet ready to carry your message of good news, with our mouths ready to speak your words. And wherever you may send us, we are women walking in the spirit of Mary of Bethany knowing that at your feet is the only place to be, the place of costly discipleship and of Martha with the courage to cast aside old wineskins and to discover the sweetness of the new wine that Mary discovered in you. We are women walking in the spirit of Hagar and finding that even in our deepest valley of the shadow that you are already there and you see us You truly see us, even when we have become so small that we cannot see ourselves. But we are women created by your good design, in your image and likeness, lovingly shaped and knit together by you to go forth in your name, to dream dreams, to prophesy, to see visions through the outpouring of your spirit on us, made whole in you. We are known, accepted, loved, forgiven. We are committed, gifted, called, commissioned, sent, and wholly yours. Amen. In Nish Wise's book, Speak, she talks about the power of empathy and what sharing life with one another does for us. And I think what she said really encapsulates everything we've been talking about in this whole series this is what she says when we listen to voices that have been silenced we become more fully human in the kingdom of god everyone's voice is important everyone is needed on the team and nobody should be hidden and so i want us to end in prayer together and we're going to do this a little uniquely i ask you guys to stand and we're going to end by saying the Lord's Prayer together, the prayer that Jesus gave us as an example of how to pray. And I want to do this for three um, reasons. The first is he starts with the word are, this idea that it, we need one another. We're a team. He also talks about um, our responsibility and what God is doing, that he is trying to reign on earth as it, he reigns in heaven and that we're a part of that plan. And then... He also talks about how we're all equal. We're all sinners, need of forgiveness, and that we can give forgiveness to one another. And that's so important when it comes to unity um, and that we need each other. And so um, let's end the series with this prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven.